Welcome to the Touching Into Presence podcast. This podcast is for people who are interested in body work, empowerment, and somatic-based practices. I am Nikki Olson. I'm Andrew Rosenstock. We are certified rolfers. Collectively, we're trained in various movement and bodywork therapies with an emphasis on somatic awareness and client resilience. Through conversations, our goal is to share and explore mind-body paradigms to offer empowerment possibilities. It was such a pleasure to be in conversation today with Don Hanlon-Johnson. Don is no stranger to the embodied and somatic work. He's been involved in this field since long before many of us were even born. Now in his 90s, he's been involved with so many of the pioneers and lineage holders of this field. A blurb written by Don about himself reads, As I move into my twilight years, I'm aware that the seeds brought forth my current work were planted over a half a century ago when I had my first post in teaching philosophy at what is now Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles, while participating with Carl Rogers in his research project on the efficacy of student-centered learning in the school system of the Immaculate Heart Sisters from kindergarten through their university. That intersection of Rogerian humanistic psychology with the experiential tradition of Socratic and Husserlian philosophy, my long history of meditation, and my first visits to the newly born Esalen Institute gradually shaped a comprehensive approach to the education of therapists and healers, bringing together the cutting-edge theoretical with relevant experiential dimensions and the intellectual aspects of developing an embodied consciousness. After studying and practicing the work of Ida Rolf, I founded the first master's degree program in somatic psychology and succeeded in having it authorized by license-granting state boards. I was a professor in that program for some 30 years. I'm now teaching a newly launched somatics emphasis in the doctoral program of integral and transpersonal psychologies. His website has more detailed information, and we'll post that a little later. For me, this was really a dream come true. Don was one of the first people I had in mind to talk with when I created this podcast, and that's further proof to me that with hard work and diligence, dreams can come true and they can actually even be more rewarding than imagined. Today's talk ran the gamut of rolfing history, phenomenology, and other topics of which Don is an experienced and knowledgeable sage of. So instead of my usual forwards, let's just hop into this exciting and informative talk. Hi there. Hey Don. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to talk with you because uh, you're in one way one of the reasons I... Well, I wouldn't say you're one of the reasons I started the podcast, but you're you're one of the inspirations that when I had a list of when I was starting, you know, who I want to speak to, you were very uh, up on the list. And after two years of chasing and finding, you know, I finally, uh, you know, and also begging and pleading with people, talking to Judith Ashton and being like, can you talk to Don? We'd love to. Uh, and, you know, and Dave Davis, I think, finally uh, messaged and started uh, at least something. So I'm happy. To- yeah, yeah, happy to um to uh to have you on uh, and to be in conversation. And Nikki's just on there too. Hi Nikki. Hi Don, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. Good. I'm just really excited to be in conversation with you. I've known about you. Um I have not read any of your books, but I've read some of your publications and then I did do a pretty deep dive on um just I wanted to listen to some of the podcasts that you've been on as a guest, just to kind of see your your style, your presentation. And I was listening to one that um I really resonated with and I just I felt kind of a I don't know, closeness because you mentioned 
how much you really enjoy gyrotonic. Oh, oh right, right. And I'm a I'm a gyrotonic practitioner. I'm proud oh, to say oh. that I've turned three rolfers into gyrotonic practitioners. And um, yeah, I come from a extensive background of movement, and um, and I I really I, of all not all of them, but I do think gyrotonic does speak really beautifully to um functional movement as well from a somatic practice so i think of um as that modality being a very somatic experience i love the beautiful machines that julio makes (laughs) yep yep (laughs) some ideas that we we did have we're we're talking about the good old days of of rolfing because you've you've been through it i'm also very uh I'm very interested in phenomenology and I, I and and looking at um, the philosophy of embodiment. Uh, and and I, one of the things I really love about your work is is that I, I do find some the somatic process to be almost one and the same with this embodied beingness. And so maybe, you know, the, my biggest issue with that is just finding the words for it. And I think that's because there there are no words for it because it's pre preverbal. But that might be something being that you, you know, or, uh, I mean, I'm sure you know this. You're just you're the the man, or we can't say the man now. You're the person because you you, you for the, the somatic arts, you, you were a rolfer early on. You, from my perspective, you're a philosopher, which I think is just wonderful. And then you founded the the CIIS um, Somatic Psychology Program. These are some some really you know amazing um, important things. And I, I would imagine that when you started that, you weren't thinking these are amazing important things, uh, and yet they are. And so I don't know if any of those are things you, you do want to talk about uh, or if there's something else you want to talk about. Those are two good ones. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the good bad old days and phenomena yeah. and rolfing. Yeah. Those are plenty. We could do a whole week on those. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. If, if, it, if, it, if it works well for you and we can all find the time, then having, having a second time for the week would be great, but let's just take it. Here we are. Yeah, for me, I think that the difficulties. I've read your book, so I I, I have a sense of knowledge, but I, I think other people may not. But I also want them to read your book, so I don't necessarily want to go like too much into how did you get there. Well, I, I I'm strangely affected by a very powerful memory that might carry a, a good introduction to. So, um, it must have been 1983. I was on the board of the Rolf Institute. Michael Salveson was president. Um, and it we met in New York. And it was the day we bought Ida's name. So it was a very strange day. It was a really strange day. The uh, first strange thing is we got very detailed lectures. So Ida was six months away from dying. She was in a wheelchair. She couldn't walk. Um, So we got a lot of lectures from the attorneys about what we were doing and the consequences, one of which I think was quite, has been quite disastrous. Um, They said, unless you prosecute every single use of the name by somebody not authorized, you will lose the service mark. It will not be valid. And we'd be paying a million dollars or half a million or whatever we paid uh, for nothing. So that was a very fatal decision. to adopt that, that thing and to go ahead with the purchase under that 
process uh, created a very um, toxic atmosphere in retrospect. So Ida looked really disturbed by all of this. And I forget the circumstances, but uh, at the end of the meeting, there was, we had about an hour, an hour and a half between dinner and the meeting. And Ida and I were the only two left with nothing to do because we were, I don't know what ever happened. So the two of us went down to this restaurant on Columbus Avenue and sat there for an hour, an hour and a half waiting for everybody to show up. And I just, it was so tender. We, we talked about our lives, we talked about our families and she was so tired and weary and you could see the day was so hard on. So it was uh, very tender and that was my final memory of Ida. And I felt I really saw her as a woman who had suffered and done a lot of creative stuff and had amazing history and who really had suffered and then died not long after. So that that was interesting that that occurred to me. It was a very moving. It always kind of put the, the later history where all of the schisms happened and all of that. Uh, I kind of always kind of experienced in that, in light of that kind of event where, you know, one of the tragedies of history. Something that, that strikes me, we've talked to experienced, more seasoned, more mature rolfers who've been doing this, you know, since the 70s and, and earlier. And there's, there's something that strikes me uh, very, very different about you in, in the, what I would say is the best of ways. And I'm curious a bit about that. And, and again, maybe we'll see how that moves through it. But there's this, for me, when, I, when I'm sitting here talking with you, I, I get this very deep sense of, of presence in the person uh, I'm, I'm talking with. Uh, which I'd like to think that's what in some way Rolfing was pointing towards. And yet a lot of Rolfers or other SI uh, guilders or whatever, are, I would say don't have that. Um, and I'm trying, there's a part of me that wants to understand, you know, what, why is it that some people go into these practices and and, and get more of a state of, of this deeper embodied mind, body centered, whatever. And why is it that some, um, well, why is it that some become more uh, like the, uh, the the aggressive patriarchal or, or matriarchal? But in this case, th- there has been more uh, patriarchal, um, and and go into that. So the only, the only the first thing that comes to me is like there's this deep contemplation in you. But I don't. I'm curious if you if you don't if you're okay to talk about yourself because I I would say that there's something about that that relates to the greater good of his work. Well, that's a very rich rich question. Um... The, um, I think the answer to your question has to do with the start that I came to Ida by way of Carl Rogers. So um, I got a serious wake up to the world of listening and realizing how little I ever listened to people or how, or how little people listened to me. And so I worked with Carl. I did my first... Uh, teaching stint uh, when he had a Ford Foundation grant to apply his ideas to a whole system in Los Angeles from preschool all the way through college. So I did a lot of work with client-centered therapy and client-centered teaching from the outset, from my very first beginning as an adult out in the world. And so uh, he made a huge impact on me, just a huge, I'd say, of all the people I've worked with over the years. 
he probably had more depth of effect on me than anybody. I'm just baffled that people don't know, don't work at listening better uh, still. So I came to Ida having already taught for three years under experimenting with these very radical teachings of listening to people and kind of gearing teaching to what people are doing and what they bring to the thing. And I was a little appalled at the uh, primitive quality. I don't know how much this is in the conscious history, but I, I know a lot about Ida's details, some very careful details that started when she was 18 years old. Um, um, she, she was swept to Esalen by Fritz Perls, as you probably know. She had never taught. She never thought about teaching. She had been trained as an osteopath. Um, and now uh, all these stars in the human potential world are saying, teach. <laughs> and they're teaching people like me who didn't know shit about the body. I had known nothing about the body. <laughs> and everybody's very interested. They're really bright, interesting people, wonderful people, but n don't know anything about the body. And in six weeks, we're supposed to learn, to learn this? I mean, I mean, that was just outrageous. So um, she pulled out of nowhere this recipe, which suddenly got sanctified over the years. But it was just a, a desperate attempt to say, how can you organize all this incredibly complex teaching? And uh, it was pretty appalling to me. I mean, I thought that the, the pedagogy was just outrageously primitive. Um, uh, so that that's a piece of it. That's, that's a piece of it. It's like... Uh, and, I, and so that's why I, I finally went back to to uh, education because that's what really interested me. I thought, well, how did? And when she would work on me, it had nothing to do with what she taught, really. I mean, basically, that's in a short short sentence. That's kind of it. I was very struck by that. I would say <laughs> what she was doing with me as, as I went through all the stuff. It just had nothing to do with what she what she talked in the morning lecture or in the recipe. It had nothing to do with it at all. I remember. I think that's um, well. I just wanted to echo. I'm not going to say this person's name because this was said in a classroom setting and not on a, a podcast. But also, a very senior rolfer has who's a trained osteopath um, has also mentioned that the ten series that thinks that the that the school is still teaching the 10 series is a disservice and it's not teaching. While it's been useful as a little bit of a roadmap, what the 10 series is slightly missing is the listening. Uh -huh. Yeah, interesting. That's right. That, that's what the osteopathists, osteopaths were fabulous at. So I, I work still with one of the people who's brought back the manipulative arts into uh, into the practice of uh, teaching the students in osteopathic college, uh, Elliot Blackman, and you know, many of us went to him in Boulder when we were turning with Ida. And he's a genius, and he's a genius at listening. <laughs> he's a genius at listening to the fluids and where they're going and all that. Uh, but I'll tell you a little anecdote that would made a huge impression when I finally first got alerted to this issue is um, for the first time ever in my basic training, Ida brought her son along. To assist, so we were having this opening uh, opening of the training in at the University of Florida in this big public lecture, and Ida was lecturing and she was getting Dick to do the demonstration, and he was demonstrating on this 
big, huge guy, Barry Nutter, who later became a rolfer, who was an Adonis-looking surfer, huge and buff guy, but he had flat feet. So he gets on the stage, and Dick comes out, and so I just standing at the podium, and Dick goes over to Rolf him, and he gets on the floor and starts working on his feet. And I just said, no, 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 Dick, this is the first session. And, and Dick says, what do you mean, first session? What, what, what's that? He, he has flat feet. We have to work on his feet. And they got it in front of about 500 people. They got into this squabble about <laughs> why, would he, why would he go anywhere except the obvious, which is to start with his feet. And I thought, something's weird about this here. He had, the two of them had worked out what rolfing was all about for 20 years in the Upper West Side in their little office. And he didn't know about the recipe, turns out. He, did, he didn't know. So when we did our training, she was having to kind of educate him to what people were supposed to be doing. So it was, to me, that was the revelation. Well, she just dreamed this up because she had to take, she had to do these workshops at Esalen. <laughs> that's why she dreamed it up. So there we are. I mean, I think that's great. I think some people, I, I can picture some people getting upset about that, which is good enough for them because they, they take the dogma so true. And I, I used to be one of those uh, who who did that. And until I sort of recognized, I won't say I recognized what you just said, because I didn't necessarily know all that, but I, I recognized there's, what, what I'll sometimes say to my clients is that what, when they say, what is rolfing? I say, well, what, what rolfing is, is the same thing as yoga, is the same thing as 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 other uh, these practices, as meditation. It's a pointing to something. And there's no way that you can really teach it. At least I haven't found a way. I mean, as, as, a, as a professor, maybe you have. But there's ways that you can help people find the way to it or around it. But there's this this place that that um it is you know i i look at stuff a bit more from the place of non-duality and so if you're in a place of non-duality which i see what rolfing is doing uh or leading to this deeply embodied quote-unquote whole uh being that it's, it's very difficult to teach and yet you need to teach <laughs> you need yeah. to start somewhere um well yeah. there are a lot of things like that i mean it's the field of psychotherapy is some similar way like in our program it was a huge breakthrough for in our long history to establish three clinics. So suddenly we had three neighborhood clinics with supervisors. So people had to do so many hours of practica and learn. And the osteopaths have that. They have these long residencies in hospitals and rehabilitation centers with supervision. And that's what that's what at least in my day in the training they don't have that enough. Because the way you teach skill is you work with craft craftspeople under supervision, you know, doing the work and getting feedback. So it's a very it's a very hard and understandable problem. Um, how it got sanctified is bizarre to me. It's like I, I'll just tell you a, a, a historical note because it's so important. Um, uh, I. Uh, well, there are too many things coming up for me, so I have to be careful. Um, I um, came to Rolfing in a strange way. I was in, had been in the Jesuits for uh, 12 or so, 12, 14 years, and it was in my latter years of the Jesuits where 
that's a whole other story where the uh, papal theologians were taking LSD. So uh, I, I both took LSD, went to Esalen, and got Rolfed, all as part of the Jesuits. And when I went to uh, eventually, uh, uh, when I was at Yale and I went to interview Ida to get trained because I loved it so much and it opened me to so much that it was hard for me to get to. Uh, Ida was kind of bored. I tried to make up all stuff about it. This is and that's what I'd done in my life to convince her I should train. And she says, well, what did you do with this 14 years? What were you doing there? And I said, oh, well, I was a Jesuit. And then her eyes lit up. She said, oh, it's Jesuit. Because that, that's exactly right. And she kept looking to me as a, a Jesuit that I would knew, knew what she was up to. And that was weird. And uh, I was getting liberated from all of that heavy weight of the dogma and the celibacy and all that crap of the church. And then I walked into this other church. <laughs> I thought, what am I doing here? What? This is crazy. <laughs> so it was like, uh, there I was again. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that's one of the things I really liked, and I'm going to probably butcher the title, Body, Body Spirit Democracy. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I remember I was reading that, and 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 in some way you were being less than maybe kind to to Rolf, and that wouldn't be the right term. But there was you were sort of pointing out some of your experiences on the 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 less positive or the or the cultish aspect of it. And I remember I have a friend who's also a Rolfer, um, and I sent it to him, and he's he is always like this is a cult, and I don't necessarily fully agree with him. But there was a lot, there's a lot, and I would really recommend. I mean, I I would recommend any. Body work, but any Rolfer to really read Body Spirit Democracy. It's a great, it's a great book. Um, and I mean, how what you're talking about, noticing how you you would go from Jesuit cult, well, cult uh, to to the Rolfing to, to the other. Um, and uh, it really, it's it spoke to me because you know you're, you're saying before, you know, how does it get sanctified? Well, I think part of the part of the um, part of the sanctification is it's. There is this movement in Esalen going on, and 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 it's counterculture. And so there is people, a lot of people, uh, you know, they have the pendulation between culture and counterculture, and they're tired of they're tired of this thing, and they want something different. And so they run to this other extreme, or it seems extreme, and because it's different, it's contrary to it has to be right because is that didn't work, and they they invest themselves. Uh, into it, it becomes an identity, becomes um, a, a part of who they are because they're so fed up, or because the other system hasn't hasn't helped them. You know, I think it was a a smothering of a lot of things that made it, uh, and then it just built upon itself, almost like, no, we can't be wrong. We have to prove even more that we're right instead of stepping back and being saying, well, is this? You know, could there be more? And and that's even I, I would say that's partly when the split went on further. As it's sort of, I don't know the truth of this, but the the story is that well, the Rolfing, the, the Rolf Institute said we want to progress beyond her work. We want to find more, and the guild said, no, we must, you know, sanctify this. And this is this word is, and I think both schools. Uh, I don't. I think that both schools go both ways that they've added on, but they've also uh, they've they've they have sanctified. It's actually one of the reasons I think it's so great to have have you on and and telling some of these stories because. To know your like to really know your past is the only way to change the future. And so to hear some of these stories and hear them slightly different is not always comfortable for certain people. But if they can listen to it with some contemplation, with some okay, maybe this might be the way, it actually frees them up to have more movement as opposed to be stuck to their their current ontological frameworks. 
Well, as you say that, I realize the power of rolfing for me, strangely, is um, that it forced me to look into Ida's past. And uh, that was very liberating to me. And it's partly why I told that story about the, her final uh, meeting with me. Um, when I unraveled, so I, I don't know how much you know of this, but it all started in Wind River Mountains of Wyoming when she fell off a horse and she, you know, damaged her back and had a hard time. And she went to this guy in Cheyenne, I think, who was a, an osteopath. And miraculously, she recovered. And so when she went back to New York, she sought out the osteopaths. And so she, one thing led to another. And she finally went to osteopathic college and she practiced for like 30 years as an osteopath. And um, so if you look at her work, she, she, and she, she developed this very creatively. She used to take, I know one of the great stories about her, she, she used to take the Santa Fe Railroad to cross the country every uh, once a year. And she would stop and rolf George O'Keefe. And then she would go on to Los Angeles with all these gang, including the, uh, the woman who carried on the, the osteopathic manipulative tradition when the AMA shut them down. So there was this whole wave of these women that were really interesting, um, a, a bunch of uh, women actually who were involved. I rolfed the contractor who built uh, George O'Keefe's house in Abiquiu. <laughs> so this great big woman, she was a fabulous woman. Um, so there was this whole rich history of Ida meeting all these people. She met a lot of people in the course of this and gradually working with people and, and trying to be of service to healing. She formulated this thing and then Fritz Perls grabs her and throws her out to Esalen where she's faced with all these brilliant people who are doing this as a that. And, um, so I came to understand what a powerful that she, like any creative person, has a long history of working, working, working for this outfitting, that outfitting, this out, and this out, and this out. And then suddenly somebody gets really fired by her. And instead of just settling down and being with her as a human being, they start ap apotheos, you know, making a goddess of her. So it's like, um, that's that's the kind of, and so I wrote I, one of my first published pieces about Rolfing was somewhere it's published about the graying about a Rolf. Uh, that, uh, how she came to be looked at as the goddess instead of a very creative, courageous, and suffering woman who made a great life for all of us. Well, I, I like that you comment on the suffering because it's something that I sometimes would like. It's very, there are pictures of her smiling, but most of the pictures we have is like a very stern woman. And not that she wasn't happy, but there, there was like this, this toughness to her. And I think that in some way that was also like uh, idolized as well. And that's maybe one of the reasons. I think there are a lot of reasons why Rolfing used to have to be strong. Um, but, the, the you know, I'm, I'm sure I've heard stories where she was very soft. Uh, and I even I love the story where, you know, the, this at least it's a story is that she was upset because people were saying she only wants to touch the body. And in the story, it sounds like she was even upset that she's like, I just can't touch, you know, the body's all I can touch. And yeah. the story yeah. at least makes her sound like a human instead of this tough, you know, yeah. person. So it it is nice to hear hear more and get, get a broader picture of her. Like Michael and I were talking on uh, a couple of days ago about um, 
I, I ask him how long he's going to work because he's, you know, I'm, I'm approaching 90 and he's approaching 86. And um, I'd say, how are you going to work? He says, well, I'm going to work till I die. And I said, what about the pain? He doesn't experience any pain. And so we started talking about Ida. She had these gnarled fingers and she had such pain in the last years. And so she really, you know, she really, um, she suffered a lot. She did suffer a lot. Yeah. Well, there was this, this, there's a crossover that I actually wanted to, to, to also talk about, which I didn't mention in the beginning, but as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm incorrect, around the time that you were, you know, doing the Rothing stuff at Esalen, there was also these three amazing women that were there, um, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, Judith Ashton, and Emily Conrad. And the, the sort of impression I got, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that they were like these almost inseparable sisters doing these things, and that you were also sort of the fourth part of them, that you were very close I to them. I brought them together. <laughs> no, Did you really? Together. Yeah, no. yeah, so, yeah, yeah, please. That was, not, that was after Ida was dead. Oh, okay. Okay. So I, I always, in my mind, it was always in the... It was in the 70s, so it was later on. If you could share a bit about that, yeah. Uh, Judith and I were friends from the beginning, from the, from Esalen. But um, it was, I, one of the things I'm proudest about in my life, and it's very instructive, I think, is that I brought together Emily and Bonnie, who never knew each other, and, and Judith, too. Um, but the reason I, uh, that's a big part of my life. Michael Murphy has been so gracious with me to let me do whatever I want at Esalen. So I get to invite all these people. So it's really, it's a wonderful opportunity. But I always had this sense that despite the fact they could not be two different people, Emily and Bonnie, their ideas were different, the way they talked was different, their cultures were different. They were totally, but I sensed that there was some deep unity between the two of them. And as soon as I got them in the room together, that's when they slipped, fell in love with each other. And they, they ended up, uh, Bonnie's still very alive. Um, she was, I can see her house across the bay. Um, but um, it was just such a pleasure to me to see my, my suspicion confirmed. They just fell in love with each other and started doing workshops. And, and it's a very interesting, to me, philosophical instance where you know, these two people are so radically different, but they're talking about this deep sense of how to discover something beyond muscles and bones and blood and, and lymph, but what goes on in the deeper cellular pulsing levels of our bodies, which are not part of the common way of thinking about embodiment. So, uh, but that happened, that happened probably 10 years after Ida died. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, I'm grateful. I think the whole, I'm, you know, I, I think you've done a lot of amazing things, but I, that um, as a student of, forms of embodiment or somatics or whatever we want to call it there are two people and, and judith as well but that emily and, and bonnie are two people who really inspire me who uh you know I, I like you said they were slightly different than what the normative was and yet there was this rich um this rich like you said they're, they're two different things and they're pointing again to this similar place of of fluid whatever being uh so, you know, you, you, in my culture, in my birth culture, you would say you did a mitzvah by bringing them uh, together. Yeah, it's, and I, I, one of the classic stories that Michael Murphy tells everybody about is that with the time when I brought them together, um, I also brought some of the leading scientists from Harvard, UCLA, and um, uh, UC Berkeley um, together with them to try to see if we could make any sense out of this in mainstream science. 
And uh, one of them, Gig Levine, who's one of the founders of psychoneuroendocrinology, um, he, he said, after a few minutes of body talking about the embodying the cells, he ran out of the house and he ran into Michael. And Michael said, what are you doing? He says, well, I can't stand this bullshit anymore. I'm leaving. He said, why don't you just go back and try a little longer? And they ended up doing workshops together, Gig and Bonnie. They would go around the country and she would do her work and he would comment on it from a standpoint of an evolutionary biologist. And it was it was fascinating how to get over these horrible divisions that cause people to separate and get mad at each other. I heard you say a similar story was kind of the same story on a different podcast. And what I really appreciated is when we're if we're coming back to like somatics how somatics can have this wide range of availability that can be accessible to so many different people. Some of the people that more of the mover feelers to more of the analytical, you know, in the, in the brain type of processing, but collectively it's coming back to feeling into a, you know, evolutionary moved experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, do you know this? There's a, there's a woman I'm very interested in that lives in your neighborhood in Woodstock uh, in the Tibetan community. Her name is Willa something, Waking the Body. Do you know this book? She's a Tibetan and um, a Tibetan uh, practitioner. But it, it's there are all these many ways of waking up the body and going into the body. There's so many ways in. It's just like uh, there's room for everybody. <laughs> And but I, I like I, I, like, I like the fact that the the, the, the person is being being confronted with something he wasn't comfortable didn't match his paradigm he yeah. left came back was able to at least get sort of something and then to bridge it and and that's um, you know that's one of the biggest I think what's what's maybe I don't want to say needed but that bridging between we can call the, the the scientific, the analytic, and and the the philosophical, and this is this has been a you know a um, a strong <laughs> division for years. I mean, there are people like yourself who are bridging it. Uh, it you know in my own practice, that's what's been most important. Is I started as a body worker and working physical, and as I started to get more into the, the for me the more philosophical. Uh, and looking at it, you know, I, I'll, I'll share a story, a story quickly where I had a client who recently, afterwards, and she's done a lot of psychotherapy and she's done a lot of body work. And afterwards, she said, "Well, I, I need to know where this is going because this seems to me a lot like therapy." And I said, "Well, has your therapist ever touched your body?" And she said, "No." And I said, "And has your body worker ever activated your mind?" And she said, "No." And I said, "Well, then I, I get why it looks similar, but it's entirely different. <laughs> it's entirely different." Um, uh, you know, and I, th I think you clearly by your laugh, you can appreciate that. Yeah. I wondered if you knew Martha Herbert in your neighborhood. Martha She's Herbert. in school and she has a little, now I think she has a little business in Cambridge with her. She's one of the founders of neuropeptides. And I'm she's one of the early, early people who joined Somatics Magazine as an editor. And she helped me much over many years of gathering these scientists. And I frankly find the scientists easier to dialogue with than a lot of the ideologues within the somatic practices. 
Oh yeah, yeah. They yeah. know enough. They know enough. To know that how little they know in a way, and uh, uh, and they. I find them quite open to because because we're experimentalists basically. You know, you, you can, we're, we're not, you know, the unions are, people who are in the field of psychotherapy, they have a hard time because how do you Oh, deal with Yeah, it? yeah. Whereas you're talking about what we're talking about. Well, there's, there's all kinds of measures and ways of. Well, well, that, and interestingly, a lot of my clients now uh, are coming for, for various types of, uh, using somatics as a way of working through trauma. And so I'm getting a lot of, of mental health workers and they used to be my worst client because they couldn't get out of their own studies. They couldn't get out of their what it was, and it's I, I, it's changing. I'm getting more who are, who who are saying, I recognize whatever I know isn't fully working. Uh-huh. What else can there be? And yeah. that that's been great. But when I do get those uh, the, the mental health workers who well, I like to say they the, for them the body is still a conceptual map, and uh-huh. so they they can't actually feel the body. They can only feel their conceptions of it. Uh, they, I struggle with, and I work with them, but there is this sort of shift towards that. The sci- I would agree somewhat on the scientific front. I think it, what I find on a lot of, at least here in Boston, where there's a certain cultural ethos imprinted in, it's hard for a lot of the science people I meet to get out of analysis and come into a, a, a preconceptual felt way. Because they they almost need the structure of the analysis, the 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 what's coming next, and and me to kind of say, well, whatever's coming next is coming next. Let's find out. So I I find a bit of struggle in that sometimes of mine. That's why Martha Herbert was really helpful to me as she was talking. I realized how she went to his clinics for her undergraduate at Santa Cruz, so she had a really sophisticated understanding of science. By the time she got to Harvard. And so she she really helped me win my way through the. There are a lot of people hard hard scientists to me are easier to deal with than people who are trying to make sense of mind body stuff because it's it's very clear you know you either you either move more comfortably or you don't and it can be measured so it's like. Uh, so I thought I, I'm saying this because maybe you should look Martha up if she's still around there. So. Yeah, I'll look her up. So I'm wondering, there was someone that somebody had referred to me, and I'm wondering if it was was her, um, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll look her up, uh, and and I actually, she, I'm going to be starting a new office in Cambridge pretty shortly, so uh, maybe she'll be right nearby. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to say a word about phenomenology, because since you brought it up, it's, my, it's actually my favorite topic for many, many years. Um, Same, so please, please, let it, lay it out here. Well, the the... I don't know if you know that that piece of Husserl's in 1938 after Heidegger had him picked out of his faculty job at uh, Freiburg. Um, uh, he wrote that piece on the crisis in the uh, Western science, uh, human sciences. Do you know this? So he said, if uh, if the, he says science has made so much, the science of the physical sciences has made so much progress, but if the human sciences cannot make uh, an equal progress, we're doomed because it's in the human sciences that we study violence and you know all of the dysfunctional things that are destroying the world. And I and so in his opinion, uh, to work at work at the challenge of the social sciences, how do you know you're not deceiving yourself, and how do you know you're not just carrying on biased conversations? Well, you know the empirical scientists do numbers and measurements. That's easy. How do we do it in 
And I think there's so much junk going on in the qualitative world. It's just not very clear. Whereas I think that thing of bracketing, where, so he talks about the uh, bracketing my opinions, so I'm not making truth claims all the time. I think there's a lot in somatics that helps me do that. So you mentioned early on about uh, we're, we're often affecting that kind of way of being. There's something about grabbing to ideas, grabbing for ideas, that if I learn to notice myself doing that and trying to convince you of my truth and just leaving space, that's a really big step towards doing this agenda. Uh, and the other one is to kind of really learn to experience more clearly and definitely, so awakening our senses so that we're really seeing more precisely. So I think phenomenology is still not fully appreciated. I think that um, uh, Thomas Fuchs and Sabina Koch and that whole group in, uh, in Germany are doing a really good job with that. I think they're really taking, making that to a place that's working over there and, and the neurosciences that yeah. they're dealing with. Uh, but here it's still not very strong. Well, here, one thing, I don't, I'm, are you familiar with some of the eco-psychology world? Yes, I am very familiar. Yeah, yeah I, I think that some of the eco psychology has really embraced aspects of uh, a phenomenology and brought in, especially like Merleau Ponty's work. Um, David Abramo, I had the same director for a doctoral study. So I, oh, really? Yeah, he's, yeah he, he's he's someone I would, I've reached out to him a few times. I don't have a direct. I'd love to have him on. I mean, I actually, I think his books are some books that every role for every body worker should read. And interestingly, I was listening to the, some of the Jim Jealous talks. Do you know Jim Jealous? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. And he, he was in one of his early, you know, early 2000s talks. He talks about David Abrams' books, and he also says that you know osteopaths should read this book. He said this guy's onto some really cool. interesting stuff, and you know, yeah, David I, has chronic fatigue, so he's not very available. Yeah, yeah I, I had a, I had a feeling that might be the case. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's one of the hard things about aging is everybody's dying around me. It's, it's very sobering. <laughs> yeah, and yet you're 90, and you look. I mean, you look. You know, late 60s, maybe maybe 70s, if that. But really, you look. You look. You know. When you said ninety, when you said ninety, my mouth just dropped down and said, "Wow, wow, that's you know," um, and because I mean, I know people who are fifties and look older than you. <laughs> there was something I was, I was looking for one of the articles that I was pretty positive you wrote that I had to read at some point, and I and I I couldn't find whatever article it was, and there's a part of me that wonders. Was it Don that wrote it or was it Jeff Maitland? Because you were two of the philosophical rolfers who first (laughs) we first sort of met. But I did find the somatic uh, Platonism, and there was this 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 line in it that you wrote, uh, which I think relates here. And also, really, it's funny. I have I I have no idea how much of this sunk in that I didn't even see beneath the surface because it's it's just where I am in my practice right now. Yet I don't even remember reading this before. But you say each person's body is the result of complex but law-abiding processes, genetic, neurophysiological, anatomical, physical, psychological, sociological, and spiritual. Becoming familiar with these processes is a basic component in the development of a skilled body therapist. And there's a little more, but I'll just say this, this is something that somehow I've found myself in it. Uh, and I've shared this before on the podcast, but just so you know, Don, I somehow, I left San Francisco in 2010, took a year off, which turned into 12 years as a nomad, working, traveling all over the world. When I came into later into this world of body work, I started to recognize 
how culture became a layering of the body of the the, the, the cultures are just ideas that we form that we take to be true um and they're just ideas. They're not actually real, but yet they become, I, I don't love the body armoring of, of Reich. I think there's some validity to it, but like, I, I think of it in a similar way. And I'll even say a person, you know, if you think of an, uh, you know, an Italian walking and a Norwegian walking, they're going to walk different. Their body's going to be carried different. That's, that's a lot about the culture, even the language. And so really dissecting when I work with people is like, well, what culture? And that culture is not just the country, every house is a culture. Every every neighborhood is there are all these micro cultures that we are we are wrapping with. And if we do want to um we do want to work with people and we do want to work with the world, we have to honor, I mean we don't have to, we have to recognize and, and, and honor the fact that these cultures are here for whatever reason and they're just simply ideas. And underneath the ideas is this humanness. And that humanness is the same all around the world. Now, at the very, very basis, we know we are all human. From there, phenomenologically, we're different, right? You know, you, but at the base of that, there is this humanness. And I think we have to find ways to meet people at the human before the culture, before the ideas, before the education. Um, I'm still working on that. I do it one person at a time. Um, and sometimes more if I'm doing group, but really one person at a time. Uh, and I'm, and I, somehow ass backwards found my way into this. I really no clue how I, I did. And yet I did. Um, but I think that that's part of the biggest thing. And so I, I really appreciate your work and your books because I see it that you're pointing to that, uh, that as part of it as well. And it's nice to get uh, uh, validation. Yeah. That's why Esalen has been so valuable for me because I had that a similar insight early on that when people when these big egos get together together in the dining room and they're having good food together and having meals together, they act differently. They act like human beings instead of like uh, people debating each other about what, what's right or what's wrong. They're bringing people like Bonnie and Emily and Judith together who, when they're giving their workshops, they're, they're sounding like Moses on Sinai. But when they're in the dining room, they're fun. <laughs> you know, mm. Yeah. Do you, and this, you might not want to answer, you might not have time. I actually am an Esalen massage practitioner. It was my first, oh, my wow. first, well, my, one of my first like massage trainings accidentally. Um, and I follow the Esalen news uh, and I, I'd be sort of curious, do, do you still think that's the case? Because as an onlooker, to me, it seems, to me, truthfully, it seems like Esalen is lost in its own ideas of trying to be what it was and pushing ideas out there. But it, it, I don't know. It, to me, it's, it's, it's not what it was, but there I don't know if you- I, I'm very involved in it. I'm on the board. Michael is right down here. I can see his house. Um, you know, it, it's it's not what it was. Yeah. But that's true of everything. It's true. true. So, And Michael's desperately trying to find ways of bringing it up to date. I feel that the Silicon Valley unicorns have too much for, uh, mm. say right now, frankly. Mm. That's my well, opinion. Well, I have some ideas I'd love to share with you because I do. Esalen is a part of my, my DNA. Um, and at another time, I'd love to share ideas, but I'm a bit um, counter, but not not counter, but not not counter, not normative. So we'll see. <laughs> um, because well, well, I mean that that was the thing I said before. I was going to say, and I forgot what it was. And you hit on it was when you were sort of talking about the the uh, the analytics and not is that to bring it back to body work or embodiment, the thing is what I've sort of found is that it's completely non-absolute. And it's the the issue is that these absolute 
thing like the the, the the doctrine is absolute or this is the way to do it but there is because of even what i said of what you shared every single being is a, is a complex person that's brought them to these different ways there could be no absolute to unravel them because they're they're a, a unique subset of so many different things and so the absolute is very helpful as a way to have a have a map uh and have a guidepost but it's not the actual thing. And so when we take this absolute to be the thing, instead of having a sense of this absolute is close enough and I'm going to use it and I'm going to kind of figure my way around, which is how some of us take the recipe. We say, okay, learn the recipe as a way to get off the recipe, learn it as a framework, as a way to kind of say, okay, well, that sort of works, but now I'm confronted with this person. What is it and how can I work with them and not be stuck to this is what I need to do? Well, as we approach the end, I want to go back to the very beginning, <laughs> to the Big Bang. I'm very absorbed in the James Webb revelation, revelations. And uh, as you were talking, I realized one of the ways I've been taking it in, and I, a new book just came out a few days ago called Cosmogenesis. I have a piece in about this. Um, it seems to me that, you know, most of us grew up, I mean, for centuries, people have grown up with this kind of orderly cosmos within which we find a place. That's just shot to pieces. If you look at those photographs, it's just a mess. The Big Bang is a mess of all these different things. So slowly, slowly, slowly over billions of years, little pieces of order form here and there and all this stuff. So I mean, talk about perfection and absolutism. I mean, good luck with that one. So if you, if, um, if you look at that, what really brings things together are, are gravity and heat and light. Those are the things that start coalescing various little exoplanets and things. So I think those forces are so ancient, the comings together and the warmth, <laughs> the warmth and light, <laughs> gravity of warmth and light. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I would I would ask you as well. Do you think that one other the things that bring them together is not really what brings them together, which is the mental construct and that the mental construct is what brings them together in our in our world is how we understand it and yet before that mental construct they're just together that's too complicated okay me. okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't quite understand what you're saying well what i'm saying is that you're saying all these things are coming together and yet for me i would say there's there's no meaning to it they come together and it's when it is the human in this case, the human, because that's what you know, other animals may, but I can't speak for them. The human giving giving the meaning, saying they come together because, or this has the value of that. That is the fourth sort of fake aspect of it, because ultimately that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we are saying. It happens. What matters is the heat, the gravity, and that is what happens. And yet, as a way of interacting with it and talking about it and making more sense of it, we we put that other construct on it. If well, I lost you, I, I apologize. Yeah, I'll probably just edit, edit that out. Because what's happening is is not just we had a bang and then things are getting orderly. It's We have a bang and then there are lots of asteroids and galaxies and gas clouds and dark holes and blah, 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 blah. And sometimes a little things form orderly in there and then they disappear. So you constantly have this stew, no matter what I think about it or what I name them. Right, right. So it's like a constant, uh, the, the cosmos is not just a cosmos, it's a chaos. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's in some way more or less what I'm what I'm what I'm pointing to. And I apologize oh. for getting for getting um <laughs> getting that. I can do that sometimes. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> um, with the time we have left, because I don't want to, um, and I know you're a busy person, you do have time. Is there is there more you you do want to share? Is there anything more we you know we can do? Is there, are there things you? There was one thing on my mind. You said you left in 2010. Um, I fell off a cliff on Mount Tempt on 2010. I fell 25 feet into a stream that goes into Muir Woods. And I knew enough to know that I was in deep danger of first dying, but but also being paralyzed for the rest of my life because I I felt the dumbness. I was lying in this rocky stream. And um, here I am. And to me, that's a miracle. It's just like, how did I get here? And that was preceded by, I had a terrible birth. I had a, uh, I was in an incubator for 12 days. Um, I had asthma my whole life. I couldn't do sports because I would get seizures. And here I am. It's just a miracle to me. Um, So I'm so grateful to all these people and Ida being a big one and her her students uh so i'm very grateful basically uh, to be here and i feel better that weird things i feel better now than pretty much i ever have and, and that's strange to me yeah. i'll speak for myself i i don't want to speak for others but i'll say i would imagine many people are also grateful for you that you have contributed a lot of work and you contribute to you continue to contribute and you know your your program at, at CIIS is uh one of the, you know I think the one in in, in Berkeley uh, the JFK they closed you're one of you and Naropa are like the, the these leading beacons um that are that are really for me I would say helping the world out and this is you know going back a bit that when we start to become more aware of of these things that are not always talked about of an of embodiment um and, and somatic work we open doorways and it makes the world for me it makes the world a much better place a healthier place not always a more comfortable place because we're disrupting the norms but a better place and that's there's a lot of that due to you so i'm also really grateful for you and grateful for the time today well it was a pleasure to be with you both so i'm really kept my brain active that's good <laughs> thank you for your very nice comments Thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Don. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to us at Touching Into Presence. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can find out more about Don at donhanlonjohnson.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. When you do this, it really helps other people find us, and we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to hearing back from you and seeing you on our next conversation at Touching into Presence. Bye for now.